And that's when I started to realize that empathy and compassion uh, from somebody I had hurt uh, was, um, you know, kind of the way to, to diffuse people. The Ethicist Corner, brought to you by the Kegley Institute of Ethics. I welcome everybody to The Ethicist Corner, a podcast in which we discuss ethics in everyday life. My guest today is Christian Picciolini, an award-winning television producer, public speaker, peace advocate, and former violent extremist. In 2016, Christian won an Emmy Award for producing an anti-hate advertising campaign aimed at helping people to disengage from extremism. And he leads the Free Radicals Project, a global extremism prevention network, uh, and is also the author of two books, uh, White American Youth, which is a memoir that chronicles his involvement in and exit from the early American white supremacist skinhead movement, and Breaking Hate, Confronting the New Culture of Extremism, which was published in February 2020. Christian will be joining the Kegley Institute on October 29th at 6.30 p.m. Pacific for the 16th annual KIE Fall Lecture. Uh, this is an event that's free and open to everyone. Uh, there's a Zoom link available for this event on KIE social media and at csub.edu slash KIE. And we hope you can join us for that event. Christian, say, thanks so much for being with us and, and welcome to The Ethicist Corner. It's a pleasure to be here, Michael. Thanks for having me. Sure, sure. It's, I'm really excited to, to be speaking to, to the Institute and to folks. I hope, I, hope, uh, I hope people come out. Yeah, there's been a tremendous amount of excitement about it already, so getting really positive feedback. So I think I'm um, uh, super Good. excited for it. Good. Uh, so Christian, just to start off, you know, in, in your, your book, Breaking Hate, which I've been uh, reading uh, over the past uh, several weeks and I've really been enjoying, and, and also your, your 2017 TEDx talk, um, you talk about your own recruitment into uh, the white power skinhead movement as a 14-year-old. Um, and for those of our listeners who aren't aware of your story, can you, can you share some of, of how that recruitment happened to you as a, as a young adolescent? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, I, I, you know, kind of started out my journey, you know, very much similar, very much how most people do that I work with, uh, helping disengage. But I think it's it's kind of the misnomer that most people uh, have in their mind of of who gets radicalized. I actually came from a very normal upbringing, a very normal family. But yeah, you know, it was 1987, and I was barely 14 years old, uh, and uh, I was a kid who was acting out. Uh, and I was standing in an alley smoking a joint, uh, and a man came up to me and he pulled a joint from my mouth and he looked me in the eyes and he said, that's what the communists and the Jews want you to do to keep you docile. Uh, and Michael, I have to say, at you know, 14, I, I didn't know what a communist uh, was. I didn't know if I'd met a Jewish person. I certainly didn't know what the word docile meant. Uh, but it was, you know, probably one of the only times in my life that I felt as though somebody was kind of pulling me in uh, and bringing me into this kind of family atmosphere. Now, let me take a step back because I, you know, I mentioned earlier, like it was a misnomer. You know, most people think you come from a broken home, you know, and you get radicalized, you end up in these hate groups. I actually came from a very normal home. Uh, my parents are Italian immigrants who came to the U.S. in the mid-60s, uh, and, you know, racism wasn't a part of my family upbringing. Um, you know, in fact, my parents were often the victims of prejudice when they arrived as, you know, Italian immigrants. Um, so, uh, you know, it wasn't something that, um, you know, was instilled in me 
growing up and my parents worked extremely hard uh, as immigrants to, you know, to raise a family. So I didn't see them very often. And I, you know, as a kid growing up, I mistook that as uh, abandonment uh, from my parents when certainly, you know, as I grew up and started to realize what it really was, it wasn't abandonment. They were just, you know, we were all very bad communicators on how we felt and, and they were off working really hard. And I was internalizing, you know, my anger for them not being there. So I went searching for another family. Uh, and uh, in that alley in 1987 at 14 years old, that man who was, you know, probably 10 or 12 years older than me at the time offered me a sense, uh, offered me three very important things. Uh, and I think that, you know, it's, this is what essentially draws people to extremism or to anything, really. Every single one of us goes through this. And that was a search for identity, community, and purpose. Mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, this, this whole idea of who am I, where do I belong, and, and what am I supposed to do with my life? Well, I was searching for a family, for sure, uh, because I felt as though mine had abandoned me, uh, and I didn't know who I was. I didn't know if I was this Italian kid. I didn't know if I was an American kid. I didn't know if I was Italian-American. I was very confused about that, um, and becoming a part of a hate group of the white supremacist movement made it very clear who I was, who my family was and certainly what my what my purpose was and, and right. suddenly I've gone from this invisible you know 14 year old kid to this empowered 14 year old kid um or you know I felt empowered it was, certainly wasn't it was fear but um yeah and and I spent the next eight years of my youth until I was uh, almost 23 years old as a part of America's first neo-Nazi skinhead group, um, as, at first as a member and then eventually as a leader until I uh, managed to disengage uh, in 1996. Right, and I definitely want to talk about that disengagement too. But, but you know, one thing I was, you know, uh, reading about in your book and you talk about something kind of counterintuitive actually that, you know, it's not the doctrine and the ideology that are actually often the initial motivators for people who are joining extremist groups in your experience. Rather, it's you know, the pre-radicalization is tied to what you refer to as uh, personal trauma and potholes, these experiences that people have. So can, can you say more about this concept, this pothole concept, and like how you've seen that inform people's sure. radicalization? Yeah, sure. I mean, in my experience, and I've worked with hundreds of people uh, to help them disengage from from extremism, you know, not one of them said, you know, I was born uh, to hate people. I was raised, you know, to hate people. In very few instances, you know, their parents kind of instilled those those ideas in them. But more times than not, you know, 9.9 .9 times out of 10, they found that outside of the home. So they went searching for it. They were, while they were searching for that sense of identity, community, and purpose that we all search for, they hit what I call uh, these metaphorical potholes in their life's journey. And potholes um, can be anything like trauma, physical, uh, sexual trauma, uh, can be, you know, mental illness, it can be poverty, it can even be privilege. Uh, you know, if, if it keeps us too separate from humanity and it doesn't allow us to really appreciate it, um, you know, it can be a, a millions of things. It could be grief, it can be loss, it can be divorce. Uh, and, and those potholes kind of serve to detour us to the fringes as we're searching for this identity, community, and purpose. And on the fringes, as we're detoured because of those potholes, um, there are people very willing to kind of scoop up the vulnerable that they see with, 
with these promises of identity, community, and purpose. And that, you know, is what happens to me at 14 years old. That's what happens in situations of, you know, sex trafficking. I think that's what uh, happens in situations of, you know, urban gangs. I think that's what, what can happen in so many situations, even, you know, in positive outlets like, you know, religion or, you know, other faith groups and things like that. As people are searching for this identity, community, and purpose, we're navigating these potholes on our journey. And some of us become intercepted unsuspectingly sometimes by these really toxic narratives. Uh, and, um, you know, they're, they're very uh, fulfilling, uh, much like a drug might be to, to a user. You know, they, they kind of make the pain go away. They, they kind of give you somebody else to blame for that pain. Uh, and um, you even know as you're doing it sometimes that it's killing you or, and the people around you, you know, much like a drug user might know that, you know, they're, they're an addict and they're an abuser and that drug is killing them, but they still do it because it, it does give them some reward as you're doing it. Um, so, yeah, it was, uh, it was, you know, pot, potholes for me certainly were abandonment, but it, it can, there could be millions and sometimes there can be many. You know, and it's interesting, you know, you, you noted in your book, too, that kind of the most common age, one thing that really struck me is the most common age for recruitment into extremist groups or gangs is 12 to 16 years of age, kind of in that, that age bracket. Um, and I was struck by, you know, in your, in your book, you shared two case, well, several case studies, right, of people that you've worked with directly and trying to help them disengage from, from hateful ideologies and, and groups. And two, that struck me as, you know, youth, but very different were Cassandra and Daniel. Right. So Cassandra coming from a supportive, well-to-do home, right? And Daniel from an abusive, drug-influenced and pretty dysfunctional home life. And yet both of them ended up aligning themselves with um, Nazi and white supremacist movements. Um, right. so can you help us to understand how, I mean, you know, two, two youth can have such different home lives, such different experiences and still be equally susceptible to falling in so deeply, right? I mean, really deeply into one of these movements and be such to be like kind of mouthpieces for the movements even. Sure, yeah. I mean, in, in Cassandra's case, you know, she, well, in both of their cases, they were searching, you know, for a sense of identity, community, and purpose and had very different sets of, of potholes. Uh, you know, in, in Cassandra's case, you know, like you mentioned, came from a, you know, very kind of upper middle class um, you know, conservative family, very, you know, religious and, and civic minded. And, and uh, her potholes were that she had an undiagnosed uh, personality disorder that, um, you know, and also, you know, came from a situation where she was a twin and her twin was very different socially than she was. So there was a dynamic there uh, that played into it. Uh, and she went searching for, um, you know, kind of a, a, a boyfriend or some sort of a partner to fulfill her online and, you know, was really kind of duped by, uh, you know, very early on in 2016 by some of the earliest Russian trolls and, and things like that online to become this propaganda mouthpiece. And in Daniel's case, you know, came from a very different set of circumstances, a circumstance of poverty and of, of uh, witnessing, you know, physical abuse and uh, and, uh, you know, drug abuse by his parents and things like that. And, you know, also went searching for a sense of identity, community, and purpose, uh, and found it in a group of skinheads uh, that, you know, kind of mimic the violence that he saw the men in his life have, but kind of wield it in a different kind of powerful way, you know, uh, and he learned how to use that, that fear, uh, you know, to, to kind of feel powerful himself. 
Um, but, you know, it's really interesting because, yes, you said that, you know, typically 12 to 16, you know, is when young people are searching for that sense of identity, community, yeah. and purpose for the first time in their lives. They're breaking away from the influence of their parents. Um, you know, they're trying to make it on their own, figure out who they are. They're starting to, you know, move towards cliques and different social groups and things like that. But what I started to notice, actually, is that people who are around retirement age, you know, uh, in their uh, early 60s or even their late 60s are also going through this crisis of identity, community, and purpose. Very much like young people might, but now they have a whole lifetime of potholes that have gone unresolved, sometimes divorce and, you know, job loss and things like that. And just, you know, struggling with life's potholes as we all do. Uh, but because they're retired, they may have, you know, they may be looking for a new community and identity because they don't have that job anymore. In some many cases, they move to a new city or a new state when they retire. They have a new group of friends and they're getting so much of their identity, community, and purpose online in places like Facebook, where coincidentally so much misinformation is occurring. Uh, and they're filling it with, you know, these really false narratives. So much like that 12, 13, 14-year-old who might become radicalized online, so are our parents and grandparents who are in their 60s right. uh, now in places like Facebook, which is really a scary kind of scenario. And, and that's actually, so you bring up the technology aspect. And one of the things, I mean, it's almost in, in the book, Christian, it's like you're, you're working to disengage people, but you're also kind of part detective, right? I mean, you're like with, with Cassandra's case, I was really amazed at this discussion of Jacob Bergson. So, I mean, this fictitious, fictitious online personality that's, being used to catfish Cassandra into believing that he's her boyfriend when he doesn't even really exist and all the different elements that were going into that. And I mean, I was just really amazed at how intricate the technological recruitment practices are for youth and also for adults. So, I mean, is that something you, you discovered? I mean, when did you start to learn about the depth of that? Was that through your experience with Cassandra? Can you tell, tell us a bit about the Jacob Berkson situation and how you discovered what that was? Yeah, if only Cassandra knew he was a fake identity because, uh, you know, here, you know, 17-year-old Cassandra thought that this, uh, you know, 21-year-old beau named Jason, Jacob Bergson, uh, who had blonde hair and blue eyes, was this real Aryan boy that loved her. Mm -hmm. uh, it turned out that, you know, uh, this recruiter, uh, this Jacob Bergson, you know, person uh, was <clears throat> a fake identity. It was, uh, you know, fraudulent account that was being run by multiple people, some of which were in the United States, some of which were in places like Russia. Uh, and, uh, you know, we're essentially creating all of these thousands of fake accounts on social media to, to essentially spread propaganda and recruit people like Cassandra, young, young teens who were online in places like, uh, you know, multiplayer online video games, or in some cases were on YouTube surfing for videos, uh, or were in autism or depression forums online and talking about their issues and trying to find support. And they were essentially looking for vulnerable young people online uh, with issues, which frankly, as young people, we all are dealing with, you know, insecurities and things like that. Um, and also looking for acceptance. So she was, an, a, a, you know, a, a relatively easy target. But who Jacob Berkson was, uh, was Cassandra's online boyfriend, was a person that she had never met in person, 
never had seen over video, uh, had spoken to him over the phone uh, a couple of times, had exchanged hundreds of emails and you know text messages. Uh, he'd even sent her photographs and videos of him, uh, but she had never interfaced with him live. And, and it, as it turned out, uh, those were all photos that were stolen, videos that were stolen you know, from online websites, just from these random websites where he would strip out the audio on the videos and include his own audio to match the lips. Uh, as best as he could, mm -hmm. uh, and uh, essentially created this fake persona to catfish, uh, to fool Cassandra into falling in love with him. Uh, and when she had fallen in love with him, he was able to convince her to start making uh, white supremacist, white nationalist recruitment videos because she was a you know a very articulate, pretty young girl who um, you know was very well spoken and started to make these really you know, kind of intricate videos where she was spreading this propaganda and people were reacting to it. So she was becoming very popular. Uh, and um, I didn't really understand this world. Uh, and this was, I should say, around September of 2016, before anybody in the world said anything about Russia and collusion or Russian interference in an election or anything like that. Um, but what I started to see very early on was this evidence of Russian people who were pretending to be American white supremacists. Yeah. And I, in October of 2016, uh, knew I had something but didn't know what I had. Uh, and that's when I started to understand the scope of this and take it really kind of further to like law enforcement and the FBI and, and really understand what we were dealing with with Russian trolls and, and you know, Russian interference in terms of uh, you know, opi swaying opinions towards elections. Yeah. So, and, and eventually in the book, you go on to talk about kind of the work you did with Cassandra and her family to help her disengage. Um, but, you know, can you, can you share your own story of disengaging from white supremacist, white supremacist extremism? Like when that happened and how did that process go for you? How did you make your way out of that movement? Yeah, I mean, my process, uh, you know, of disengagement started really the day I was engaged into the movement at 14 years old, because it was almost like a, a process of one step forward, two steps back, some days two steps forward, one step back, you know, as you get, um, you know, more entrenched into the movement, uh, but you also start to see things that question you. What I'm trying to say um, in so many words is there wasn't a day that went by that I, I didn't question what I was involved in, mm -hmm. uh, because you know, I, I wasn't raised that way. Certainly the ideology was something that I had to acquire instead of, you know, something that was already ingrained in me. Uh, and it didn't always make sense to me, but it was cer certainly not something I could question in that environment to other people. Yeah. Um, you didn't, you didn't do that. You kind of bought it and, and you swallowed it. And, you know, to, to, to get the reward of being accepted, you had to spit it out and you had to act on it. And eventually you start to believe it and you start to, to make it who you are and, and it became who I was. Um, but, you know, about eight years uh, in, um, in 1990, about seven years in, in 1995, um, I had met a girl, um, actually take a couple steps back. Uh, I had met a girl before that and gotten married when I was 19 years old. Uh, my, wife, uh, my wife and I had two children uh, and, uh, that, uh, you know, having children, because it wasn't something, my ideology and my movement stuff wasn't something I brought home. Although my wife knew very well what I was doing. She was not a, a sympathizer to that. We were 19 years old and she was against it. And I was, you know, a leader of a, of a Nazi gang at, at that point, but it was still something I didn't bring home and she allowed me to do it, but uh, there was a line. Uh, 
Uh, and having children and being married at 19 was the first thing to challenge my sense of identity, community, and purpose that I had found. Uh, because, you know, uh, before that, I was, uh, you know, a, a skinhead leader, and, and my purpose was, you know, the saving something of great importance, which was this, you know, this idea of the white race. And suddenly I, I had, I was a father and a husband, and I had children, and I loved my, my wife and my children. And and I, the two worlds didn't coexist, especially because I never brought it home. Uh, so that was the first pivot kind of point. I still stayed in, uh, but I promised my fam my wife that I would take a step back, that I didn't want to endanger the family by continuing to, you know, be violent on the streets and lead a gang and, and all these things. But I was going to open a record store instead, legitimize, you know, my business. That was my me rationalizing it at the time was I was going to legitimize myself and just have a, a, a record store where I would sell white power music that I was importing and that I was making as well. I was in a band. Um, and it was at that record store um, that uh, not only did I sell racist music, uh, but I sold punk rock music and I sold heavy metal music and I sold hip hop and uh, rockabilly and all underground music that was at that record store where I actually started to meet people that I thought I hated. Uh, and I, because it was in my store and I wanted to be a, a respectable business person, I promised myself I wasn't going to start anything in my store that I was going to treat everybody with respect, mm -hmm. even if I had to bite my lip. Uh, and as people started to come in who, you know, were people of color or who were gay or who were Jewish, uh, and everybody knew who I was. I mean, I wasn't at that point hiding it. It was before the internet. So I, we weren't using that to promote ourselves, but I was still very vocal. And I think uh, that people came in uh, intentionally to challenge me with compassion now that I look back. Uh, but I started to meet people for the first time and interact with them in a meaningful way. And I started to, it started to challenge my views of how I thought I hated them. And they saved my life, Michael, because they didn't have to do that. It wasn't their responsibility. In fact, you know, I don't even recommend that. Like if they could have been my victims and they instead chose to challenge me with empathy and with compassion. Uh, and uh, I'm really grateful because ultimately that's what made me embarrassed to sell the racist music. That's what made me close my record store down. And that's what made me walk away from the movement. In fact, run away from the movement uh, and then eventually denounce it. So, you know, Christian, it's, it's one of the things that you, you said there uh, is really powerful and something that's really resonated with me in your previous talks and in your work is you talk about the importance of radical empathy. And you note that um, actually what's not helpful in, dis in disengaging people is argument, right? Or trying to prove that they're wrong on a cognitive level, but actually empathy is the key. And that sometimes you have this line that sometimes those who need empathy the most are those who least deserve it. And I think that's a really pr profound statement. And I'm, I'm wondering, how did you, at what point was it that you discovered the kind of the significance of empathy? Was it reflection on your own experience or through working with people and trying argument and just realizing, hey, this is not working. I'm like beating my head against the wall here. Like, how did you get, how did you gain that insight? Because it just seems super powerful. Yeah, no, I mean, I think it was used on me first. And I think that that's how I first was introduced to it. So, you know, I got out of the movement when I closed that record store in 1996, January of 1996, I think it was. And, uh, and I told my guys, you know, because I was leading this, this group of, you know, not just local skinners, but I was the national or the regional director for a group called the Hammerskins, which uh, was a very violent, still a very violent skinhead, neo-Nazi skinhead gang. Mm -hmm. uh, and I told the guys, I said, you know, my store shut down, 
by that time, my wife had left me and had taken the children because I hadn't disengaged from the movement quickly enough to focus on my family. Uh, I told them I needed time to focus on finding a job, focus on rebuilding my family, and that I would come back. I just needed some time. I never intended to go back. I just never had the courage to tell them, like, you know, I'm denouncing this stuff that we're involved in. I don't believe in it anymore. I'm changing, you know, the way I feel. I didn't have the courage to do that. So it took me about four and a half years before I found the courage to do that. And mm -hmm. 99, um, you know, I was kind of in a bad place. I had run as fast as I could from, from that life. I had moved, I, you know, grown my hair out and started to wear long sleeves to cover my tattoos. I'd made, you know, new friends. I was treating people with, uh, you know, with the respect that they deserved and, and not telling them the truth about who I was. Um, and, you know, a friend came to me and she said, you know, I wasn't doing very well. It was pretty obvious. And a friend came to me and she's like, listen, I don't want to see you die. So, uh, let, we've got to change something. I was, I was, you know, very depressed at the time. And, and she offered to introduce me to, to, uh, the hiring manager at a job she had just taken at a company called IBM. Mm -hmm. And I thought she was nuts because, you know, here I was, uh, you know, an ex skinhead covered in tattoos. I'd never gone to college. I'd gone to six high schools. I'd been kicked out of all of them, you know, one of them twice, um, and I didn't own a computer. It was kind of like ridiculous, but I, she was a good friend and, and I, you know, I promised her I would go and do the interview and I went in and it was for an entry level position, setting up computers, hundreds of computers when a corporation would, you know, refresh their whole computers or a school or a university would order 300 computers. Somebody would have to come in and install them for them. Yeah. Uh, and uh, I got this job uh, and I was thrilled because, you know, here I, you know, I'd left the movement five years before I was struggling. You know, I had young kids that I was really trying to take, take care of, even though I was divorced. Um, and, um, and I was thrilled that I had this job with IBM uh, and, then they told me where I was going to work my first day of work, and I wasn't really thrilled anymore because they told me I was going to be going to work at my old high school, the same one I'd been kicked out of twice. Oh, no. All their computers for like the whole summer. That's where I was going to be stationed. And I, yeah. They didn't know. IBM had no idea even went to high school there. They had no clue. Uh, and I was terrified because I knew for sure that somebody was going to say, there's that Nazi he's got to go like, and I was going to lose my job. I was going to get fired. I was going to, all these things were going to happen. And, um, and I decided, okay, well, I'm going to bite my tongue. I'm going to go to work the first day and I'll figure it out when I get there. And I was terrified. And of course I get there and within the first 15 minutes, he walks by me at this whole, you know, my old high school. Uh, I hadn't, you know, I hadn't been there in, in eight years. I had left the movement five years prior and who walks by me, but the old security guard, who I, the black security guard I'd gotten in a fist fight with that had gotten me kicked out of that school, uh, Mr. Holmes. And um, he didn't recognize me, but I recognized him. And I knew I needed to do something. I just didn't know what I needed to do. And I followed him to the parking lot and I tapped him on the shoulder. And when he recognized me, he took a step back because he was afraid. Uh, and I didn't know what to say except for, uh, I'm sorry. And he looked at me and, and he kind of took a step toward me and he put out his hand and he said that, you know, sorry, makes you feel good. You know, it uh, doesn't do a whole lot for me. I'm going to need you to do a little bit more than that. And uh, that's when he sat me down and he forgave me and he said, you know, I appreciate you coming here, but you got to fix the damage you've caused because, you know, it wasn't just about you. And, and that's when I started to realize that empathy and compassion uh, from somebody I had hurt uh, was, um, 
you know, kind of the way to, to diffuse people. Uh, he gave me a, a path forward. He was the one who taught me that I needed to repair the, the harm that I'd caused. Uh, and that's what I've been doing for, you know, for 20 years. Uh, and I'm grateful to him. He just retired last year from, from the school district. Um, tremendously powerful. I mean, it, yeah, just on so many levels. And I, I'm, I, you know, and so using that tool of, of empathy, you know, along with, you know, the, the other work and the knowledge that you have, I mean, how many people would you say you've helped disengage from um, radical extremist movements? I get asked that question all the time. It's so hard to say because it's such a long process. Uh, uh, I mean, I've helped, I can tell you I've helped over 600 people uh, that have reached out to me. And some of those are, you know, not, some of those are parents who've reached out about their children. And then eventually I've worked with their, with their children or the, you know, a girlfriend who's reached out about a boyfriend and eventually I've worked with them. Uh, but I also get like hundreds of letters and postcards and emails from people that say, Hey, I heard your story. Uh, and it's my story. I've just never told anybody. And I just want to say thank you because now I have the courage to like tell my wife about who I used to be 20 years ago or, right. you know, things like that. So it's hard to say. I mean, if I've helped one person, you know, I am happy. Yeah. Uh, you know, I think I've helped a few. Yeah. So, it, it, so speaking of that too, um, Christian, I can understand why that could be hard to quantify, but it's like, if there are people listening now, like who have a friend or a relative or a partner who, um, maybe is, is in an extremist movement or is dabbling with it, being recruited. Are there, is there a place they could go or a resource you'd, you'd recommend for people to check out? Yeah, I mean, they can certainly always reach out to, to our organization, the Free Radicals Project, and that's freeradicals.org. Uh, there are other organizations doing uh, this kind of work. Uh, and, you know, what I would encourage them to do, though, is really understand that they're the best people to do this work right? Mm -hmm. The people closest to them. Uh, and it doesn't mean, we talked earlier, like argument doesn't, doesn't help. Shame doesn't always, you know, it doesn't help. Uh, what it does is it makes people retreat. It can be healthy in certain situations, but you know, what we really need to do is start listening and we need to start listening for those potholes and we need to start helping repair them as best as we can. And then refocusing that, that toxic identity, community and purpose they're finding in, in those places with something more positive, um, you know, and, and there are so many ways to do that. And there, you know, as parents, as friends, as coworkers, as, you know, significant others, you know, we all have a role to, to play. We all know somebody who's affected by this and we all have, can make the greatest impact uh, on, on those people. Uh, and, and if we just understand that it's not ideology that is typically attracting them to these movements, it's that search for identity, community, and purpose, and it's those potholes that lead them there. If we can understand it's not ideology, then we understand it's not ideology or, or combating it with an, an, an ideological thing that is going to bring them back. Right. It's about, you know, building resilience that'll bring them back. Awesome. Well said. Thank you. Um, so Christian, we want to close with our tradition at the Ethicist Corner, which is our lightning rounds, which is uh, five short questions. Uh, help our listeners to get, know, get to know you a little bit better. Okay. Uh, so I'll just, uh, I'll jump right into it. So uh, question number one is, what is one of the best pieces of advice you've received in your life? All right, I'll, I'll make a little anecdote about this. It, it won't be fast, but somebody asked me to come up with a mission statement and I, I could only use three words to do that. And I thought it was the hardest thing to do. And it took me a couple of days to do that. And finally I came up with it and it's make good happen. And I try and judge every decision I make based on those three words. Is this going to make it happen? And, and when, I, when I'm pretty good about judging it against those, it works. I love it. I love it. Uh, if you could have dinner with any two people, 
past or present, who would they be and why? Oh my goodness. <laughs> uh, all right, present, uh, Barack Obama, past, Bob Marley. All right, strong dinner. I mean, at the same time would be, would, would be awesome. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. I'd, I'd, I'd like to have a seat at that table. <laughs> uh, what is your favorite hobby? What do you do outside of your work? Oh my goodness, hard questions. I, I collect books, can you tell? Yeah, yeah, you got a nice library going on. <laughs> I collect books. Uh, I like to read, uh, and gosh, um, that's it. I like I like to collect books. Okay, so post quarantine, we're able to kind of travel again and and do all that more freely. If you could live anywhere in the world for one year, uh, where would it be? Copenhagen, without a doubt, Denmark. Interesting. All right, nice. I love it. It's a very very cool city. Very cool. All right. Uh, and last but not least, uh, this is right up your alley because it's about books. Uh, if you were stranded on an island and could have one book, which would it be and why? Oh. <laughs> you, you literally are asking the toughest question. You're asking me to pick one book out of all of these. All right, I'm, I'm going to go deep on this. Um, I'm not going to pick anything political. If I were to pick something political, I'd say something like, you know, True Believers by Eric Hoffer. But uh, I'm going to go with with my favorite book uh, of all time, uh, and that is The Egypt Game from my youth, from like like deep tracks, like like fifth grade. All right, the Egypt Game. The Egypt Game, good a good deep cut. I've not heard of it. Look Egypt. it up. Yeah. Look it up. It's a it's a great book. Christian, <laughs> right. um, this has been such a great conversation. Like, just you know, thanks for uh, all you do and for for sharing your story and. Uh, for your vulnerability, honesty, and authenticity. Really, really appreciate it. And I'm really looking forward to having you give a talk for the Kegley Institute and for our greater community uh, on the 29th. Thanks so much. I'm really looking forward to it too. Thanks, Michael. I appreciate it. Sure. Take care. Cheers. Thanks for listening to the Ethicist Corner podcast, a production of the Kegley Institute of Ethics. To hear future episodes, follow us on Spotify, SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, or iHeartRadio. Please join us on Thursday, October 29th at 6.30 p.m. Pacific Time for the 16th Annual KIE Fall Lecture featuring Christian Picciolini. His lecture is free and open to the public via Zoom and is titled Breaking Hate, Confronting the New Culture of Extremism. You can find the event Zoom link at www.csub.edu. Or on KIE social media.